0: Missy, thank you all. Um, Right now I feel okay, but as my voice starts to wear out through this message, you guys might need to boost the volume. (laughs) But um, what an honor to be here. I'm really enjoying this um, journey through 1 Peter, because it's an interesting book. Uh, You know, Peter is very theological, And sometimes, as you work through a book like this, and we talk about hope, and we focus on the reason for our hope, and the object of our hope, and the source of our hope, but being a very practical person, this kind of theological approach leaves me asking a question, which is yeah, but what does hope look like? What does it look like in action? How can I tell if I'm acting hopeful or not? Or hopeless, which is pretty much the case most of the time. <clears throat> or rather, you know, we want to know what does biblical hope, how does it look different from worldly hope? Because there is a form of hope, and probably of the thing you're most familiar with, and we all use the word all very frequently, when we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope I get a blank for my birthday. A blank check would be nice. <laughs> or I hope she likes me. As a manager, I work with people and I often find myself in these long, uncomfortable meetings where some executive or a demanding customer is pressuring the staff for some tangible meaningful status update and some poor unenlightened middle manager speaks up and says well we hope to deliver on Wednesday and you just shun you know he says we hope the parts arrive this week and the manager will stand up and say hope is not a strategy you know Tell me what you're doing to make sure those parts arrive on time. Tell me what you're doing to make sure you can deliver on Wednesday. Hope is not a well-loved word in the business place. But I don't think that's truly in sync with the biblical view of hope. I think in the Bible, what we're reading in 1 Peter is a concept of hope which is substantive. Substantive. And effective and lasting. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 13 at the end of that beautiful verse on that that chapter on love, it says, And these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What that means is that somehow faith and hope and love are three realities of life that are going to remain well into eternity. Somehow we'll be experiencing those in heaven. I wonder what I'll be hoping for in heaven. Just hoping that the sun be glorified more. I don't know. It's partly explained just above that in verse 7 of First Corinthians 13 when it says love always trusts and always hopes. So we see that faith and hope are a function of love. I want to point out a quick application of this we see later in 2 Corinthians, where it says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What does that mean? It means that unseen things, you can't see hope, you can't see faith, you can't see love or pick it up, but it's eternal and they are much more worthy of our focus and time and energy than the things that are seen, like cars and houses and bank accounts and lands and possessions. All of those things will pass away, but these three will remain. I call these unseen things the invisible eternals. It's just a Easy way I have of reminding myself that there are invisible eternal things that I need to be aware of and think about more so than the other things. But let me, uh, what we're going to do today is move through the reading that I just gave you, which well, I don't want to go that far. Maybe I do, um, of this section of 1 Peter, because it's kind of like the end of the introduction. After this, we're going to go into 1 Peter and see him really apply hope into many life situations and even to the expectation of even greater persecution to come. Remember that Peter is writing to people who are suffering persecution and, and have been scattered throughout Asia Minor. They're away from their homes. They've left jobs. They've left infrastructure. They're, they're in a, a new place. Some of you might feel like that sometimes. This letter is for you. So hope may not be a strategy, as my boss is so fond of reminding me, but it is an action. So let's turn to the reading. If you were in your Bible in First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13, it said, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what this tells us is hope is not passive. It's not just an emotional indulgence. It has to be applied. It can be applied independent of your circumstances. And that requires intentionality. It's something that you intentionally do. And you are to be focused and aware of what you're doing. You are to be sober. That is not under the influence of any foreign substance whether chemical, spiritual, or moral. If you're hoping for something in Christ, you make sure you're focused on what it is you're expecting from him. These two directives to be alert and sober clearly assume that that hope is an intentional activity. You might see the same thing written on a sign as you're entering a, a shooting range or an archery gallery. Be alert be sober, because you're about to employ something dangerous. It's interesting also that the, the writer in the letter of Hebrews um, writes, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's why I got little anchors all over the, the PowerPoint. Peter, when he writes, set your hope could equally be shouting, Set your anchor. And if you're a sailor or you spend any time on the water, you know that the, the tone and the urgency by which you might say those very words are no less than the urgency we should hear from Peter. Set your hope. Don't just yeah, let it float off in the wind like a, a feather. You, f- you set it, you focus it, you do it intentionally. Let's keep going in 1 Peter and see what that hope looks like in action. Here's what it looks like. Back one, back one. It's something new and different. Verses 14 through 16 said, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. This is one of several references we can think of throughout scripture about childlike faith, right? Childlike obedience. What does it mean to be childlike? How does a child respond to a loving parent's instruction? And at least before they're 12 years old. <coughs> with trust and confidence. The child doesn't question his parents' love or motives and often is eager to to please his parents by by following through and doing what they've been told if they don't get distracted by a caterpillar or something. Kids are funny. We get distracted too, don't we? Some of the manifestations of hope that we're going to talk about are going to seem strange to you are unusual, but you have to trust your heavenly Father. You have to trust. He is trustworthy, as Peter has pointed out already throughout this letter, and will continue to point out as he talks about the power of God to raise Christ from the dead and the value of our faith, which is worth more than gold and silver. And God's faithful execution of a plan that has been in place since the beginning of time, that has been revealed to prophets and angels, this is not a new thing. And God is trustworthy. We can count on Him to keep every one of His promises. And so we obey. And we gladly shun those desires and false ideas. That is, Peter writes, we once held in ignorance. How many of you know that you were once ignorant? There's a lot of things you didn't know, and there may still be a few things you don't know. And yet, what we celebrate in the gospel message is that God has opened our eyes, and we're now seeing truth. And we want to intentionally Reject the things we did in ignorance and start doing the things that we're learning through the truth of God's word. Now, Peter goes on and talks about this strange quote, be holy because I am holy. What does that mean? Are we to be perfect? Is this a call to God-like perfection? If so, what hope do we have? Because I'm not there yet. I think instead that what this is is a clear reference to those places in the law, that is the book of Leviticus, where this phrase actually occurs and there's three important ones. The first one is at the end of a long chapter in, in Leviticus 11, which is all about the animals and the types of animals that the Israelites could and couldn't eat. So at the end of that long description no camels, no pigs, okay for ox. You know, it's, it's crazy. Um, and at the end he says, but be holy because I am holy. What's that got to do with eating animals? The second place it shows up is in uh, Leviticus 19.2, right at the beginning of the, what we commonly call the, the Ten Commandments. So God walks through this list of Ten Commandments after saying, be holy even as I am holy. And the third significant place it shows up is in Leviticus 20. At the end of a section dealing where God is warning the Israelites about dealing with mediums and spiritists and all forms of adultery and sexual perversions. He says, be holy, for I am holy. The point of all of those three sections of the law was to differentiate the Israelites, from all the other nations that they would encounter in Canaan. They were going to be exposed to people who ate camels or pigs or crabs, shellfish, I don't know. They were going to be exposed to practices that for one reason or another God did not want them to participate in mostly because he wanted them to stand out as different. And the Ten God's commandments is the basis of of a whole legal system that identifies the Israelites as a people who stand for right versus wrong. And the other spiritual and social practices, there might be good uh, reasons not to do all those things. You can rationalize why God would say these things. But the main reason is he wanted Israel to look different from the rest of the nations. We are supposed to look different, too. We're supposed to look different from this world we're in. The biblical word for that is sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. That's what holy means. Holy doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you've been set apart for a specific purpose. So when Peter writes, be holy, for I am holy, he's saying be different. Be set apart. Don't get drawn in and tempted by the things around you, the culture around you, the behaviors that so much of the rest of the world engages in all the time. We're to be different. We're to be set apart. We have been reserved for a holy purpose. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to act different. We're supposed to have different beliefs and attitudes and practices than the world around us. And In fact, sometimes we're going to look so different we're going to look like foreigners. We're going to look like we don't belong here at all. And Paul, <laughs> and Paul goes, and Peter goes forward in, in verse, um, I'm going to read these in a little mixed up order because he has a strange way of writing, which is you know, phrase after phrase after phrase tied together. That was a sign of um, a learned style of, of, of writing or, or preaching in those days. We take a very different view. We use short sentences. So in verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. One of the songs we sang this morning, the first one talked about the way of the world or something It just reminded me of this. There was an empty way of life handed down to us. But we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then verse 17 is sort of like the therefore, which says, so you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, so live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So he, he assumes a starting condition where we had inherited an empty way of life. How many of you have an inheritance? Good for you. What's your phone number? (laughs) Uh, Well, we all have inherited something and it may not be all that useful. Um, We have inherited the norms, the practices, the assumptions of an entire culture. And I think it's right to say that it's pretty empty. Now, I'm gonna, this is the part of the sermon where I demonstrate how old I really am. Because I don't know any of the current cultural signals to this. I, so I go back a long way. But, but the things that we take into our lifestyle and the, and the way we make our day-to-day decisions are based on foolishness, or what we call empty lifestyle, like a, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. You know, we just have this temptation to... To want to do what the people around us do. Someone else has an iPhone, I need an iPhone. Someone else has a game box 20,000, I need a game box 20,000. <laughs> you know, we talk about taking care of number one. The idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, revenge. These are just things that come out of the atmosphere. Some of them from a biblical, a false interpretation of a biblical sense. Some people say, if it feels good, do it. Or I did it my way. Those are just things that come at us from the atmosphere. And and here's my pet peeve. This comes from 50 years ago. 1968. A song that three different artists recorded and got into the top ten. It was written by a a man named John Hartford, um, who just recently passed away. I always liked John Hartford's songs. But it was made famous... Let's see, not only... I'm not going to give you names yet. It was rated as the 16th song in the top 100 of the 19th century. Number 16 in 100 years. It was made famous by Glenn Campbell, and it contains these lyrics. It's known, I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds, and the ink stains that have dried upon some line. But we all loved that song, Gentle On My Mind, because that's a nice phrase, gentle on my mind. But did you realize it was an anti-marriage, anti-traditional family song? These things creep into us. The, the bigger, I saw John Hartford in person in the early 70s, so this song had already become popular. I saw him perform live on a Christian college campus. So these things just come to just sneak in. These worldly views just sneak into us all the time. And Peter is saying, reject them. That is not hope. These things are all opposed to God's perfect plan. Let me move on really quickly. In a book I've mentioned before from the pulpit, because it's been really helpful to me, called Leading with a Limp by Dan Allender. I have to say that name so you know I'm not plagiarizing. But I always say it wrong, so that's it. It's Allender. It looks at the five inescapable challenges of leadership, but I find that they show up in almost every area of life. These are five inescapable things that you get to look forward to. And he contrasts our natural way of dealing with them with a later on a spiritual way of dealing with them. Excuse me. And the reason I bring them up here is not because these five, these things help me understand Peter better. I really think that Peter helps me understand this book better. And, and John, uh, Dan Allender is a Christian, writer, so there's every reason to believe that his ideas, which are taken from the Bible, ought to be corroborated by, by Peter's writings. Now I have to step through this a few times because I messed it up. There we go. These are the five inescapable challenges of leadership and what you will encounter in life. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Crisis, complexity, betrayal, loneliness, and weariness. I'm going to give you a very brief summary of what Dan Allender says is our natural way of dealing with these things in our lives And later on, you'll see that that Peter does corroborate that. Here's what they are. Our natural tendency in a crisis is to hide and fix blame. You can turn on CNN every day and see this going on 24 hours. Also, complexity. This was the one most helpful to me as a a manager. It's so easy to say, this is the way you're going to do it. To just arbitrarily decide of the black and the white and and just decide this is going to do it. Or to become dogmatic. That's our natural tendency. Betrayal. Our natural tendency is to want revenge and then because of that hurt to become detached and to begin to treat people as objects so unless they feed a purpose in my life, I don't need them. That's narcissism. The natural reaction, very interestingly, to loneliness is further isolation and withdrawal. Withdrawal from those situations in which you feel lonely. So uh, it just perpetuates. And for weariness, this fatalism, this just got to muddle through, uh, it's just the way it is. I, I'm tired of hearing people say it is what it is. Um, and finally, disillusionment. The things that you thought you were doing for a good reason that are now just a burden. Forget it. I'm, I'm tired of that stuff. These are our natural tendencies. We'll all face these these issues in our life. Um, And it's not just the the empty way of life we've inherited. Guess what? You contribute to this because we all have an old sin nature. This all comes from just what we inherited from Adam, really. And it's it's part of us. Yeah. What we need to counter our natural tendencies is a completely foreign response. Not these five, but a response that others will see as different. Not the same old, same old that they see all the time from politicians and whoever, whoever else that that you run into. And often it's a response that we are not comfortable with and which we are grossly unfamiliar with. But Peter just wants to encourage you here as we go through this passage in, in sequence. He takes a little aside to boost your confidence and remind you. Uh, this is the one I've got to go through twice. No, we missed a slide. We missed a slide. Alright, I'm going to have to read it to you. The next Section in 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21 is just an aside to remind us of who we're placing our confidence in. It says, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So, but being reminded that you're not only new and different, but literally foreign-looking may make us a little insecure at times, make us a little unsure of how, you know, we're supposed to act. So Peter takes these, this moment here, these verses, to remind us that we are no longer citizens of, that, of the world. We were purchased with that power of Christ and now belong to a kingdom that as we just read was established before the world was made, before any of these external cultures or influences even existed. And these practices and attitudes that tempt us, there is a standard in Christ that has been there forever. It was revealed at the perfect time, do you realize that you're living in a perfect time? that this age in which the gospel has been revealed and you've been chosen to be an example of a godly hope is the perfect time, and you were picked to be here, and and you're here because others need to see this different way of responding, this different lifestyle. You're here at this time for a purpose, and the power that caused you to believe is the same that raised Christ from the grave and glorified him. Glorified means that he has a seat on the right hand of the Father and fully shares in all the authority and power of the Heavenly Father. So, in case you were feeling a little intimidated, remember who you are. <laughs> it's good to have a cold when you do that. Now, let's see if I can get onto the right slide here. What else does love look like? It looks like love. This concept, as we're going to read in a moment, verses 22 and 25, 1 Peter 1, is the real beginning of the answer to those five inescapable challenges. Peter writes, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again not by perishable seed, but by of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Biblical hope is based on a critical turning point in the life of each one who is a member of this new kingdom, who has responded to the truth that's been revealed. And Peter begins with an interesting assumption which is based on an irrefutable truth. The irrefutable truth is this, spoken by Jesus Christ and captured in John chapter 13 verse 35 when he said by this everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You can take that the other way. It says, I've heard a a preacher once preach the world has a right to determine whether God exists or not by whether or not they see you love one another. Everyone should know that we are disciples of Christ because we love one another. This is the quintessential evidence of discipleship, is love for one another, love for other people, love for other disciples, love for others in the body of Christ. And the assumption Peter makes as he goes through this interesting statement we just read is that you have purified yourselves how many of you know that you've purified yourselves? I don't know. When did I do that? It's interesting. You have to think about the context in which Peter was speaking. We think of purification as, you know, you stick something into a hot furnace. I don't know. You, you really blast it or you dump alcohol on it or, or something and make it germ-free and uh, antiseptic. That wasn't quite the picture that Peter was having. Peter is talking to Jews And when they hear the word purify, they're going to recognize it as the actions you take as you approach the temple and intend to go in, and so you wash. It's a step in the process of getting close to God. It's not effective. It doesn't actually do anything. It's kind of symbolic, but it is an important step in that process. And so he's saying, you have purified yourself. You've taken a step. To get close to God, how? By obeying the truth. The truth, which we've obeyed, is to see and understand that salvation is through faith in Christ, not by our own works. If you have encountered that sentence in your life and you've given assent to it and agree, then you've essentially taken the first step in purifying yourself and approaching closer to God. That's the context in which Peter is using it. And so he says, as as though it's a given, which I don't fully understand, but I believe in the indwelling Holy Spirit that made it happen in me, that once you do that, you now have sincere love for one another. Isn't that amazing? By one thought and decision, another thing becomes true. That's the power of the God that we believe in. And this new life has sprouted not from something imperishable like an actual seed, but by something imperishable, invisible, eternal, the word of God working in your heart. So this assumption of sincere love, which is the guarantee of sincere love in us, is the key to hope. And the verse that he quotes here um, about the grass is also interesting because that's from Isaiah 40. There are songs written from Isaiah 40 that just don't contain those words in them. Isaiah 40 is a wonderful passage in which God is telling Isaiah what he wants him to communicate to to the kingdom of Israel to God's chosen people. Remember, the people sanctified, set apart, chosen by God for a special purpose. And it begins with this reminder that all cultures, all people, all nations, even you, Israel, are like grass. You're going to fade away. But this is what is true of the God that that you serve. And I'm going to very briefly capture the, the hot bullet points from Isaiah 40, some you'll recognize. He says, Shout to Zion, shout to Israel, here is your God. He comes with power, with a mighty arm. He brings reward and recompense. He tends his flock, he gathers his lambs, he carries them close to his heart, he gently leads them. He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand that's the seas. Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian. He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. Before him, all nations are as nothing. He brings princes to nothing. He blows on them and they wither. Just, there they go. They're gone. Where was I? He will not grow tired or weary. He gives strength to the weary. And the, Isaiah 40 ends. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It is in the nature of this God and the love produced in his disciples and in the strength of his promises, even when we are weary, that I see the source of the necessary cure for our broken ways of reacting to the challenges of life. And here's how Dan Allender presents them. Remember, before our natural response to crisis was to hide and fix blame, a spiritual, hopeful way of addressing crisis is with honesty, openness. Guess what? I screwed up. Can I say that in church? and I'm sorry, I'm broken and I need to work with you to make it better. Complexity, seek the truth. Do the hard work of going deep to unravel the difficult situations. You know, we've got a lot of complex situations going on in our world today. Um, immigration, healthcare, these are difficult things you can't solve with a sound bite. It's gonna take Hard work and deep searching for truth. Betrayal. Respond with forgiveness. Gratitude for what you have had and for what God has given you and continue caring. Loneliness. The solution to loneliness surprise is community. Don't avoid the community. Don't avoid those very people that something you feel is, is isolating, separating you from. Continue to care The solution to weariness is courage. Courage to say, no, I can't do anymore. Courage to say, I can't solve all the world's problems. And the creativity in Christ to say, you know what? Let's seek a new way. Let's seek a new way of doing things. Y'all got those? You want to write them down? I'm going to move on. (laughs) So Peter says... Point three is that this hope is the fruit of a new way of living. I don't want to go there. Finally, he closes. The first couple uh, verses in chapter two are really part of this whole introduction. So I spilled over into there. Forgive me, Kyle. He says, Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Doesn't that sound like the way we naturally respond to those crises, those problems, those challenges in life. Peter's saying, rid yourself of them. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This is about discipleship. Oh, get close to God. Take that next step after purification is to receive the milk of God, the the word of God, introduce yourself to it, get close to it, be around people who know it. Like babies, just fill yourselves and begin on that process of growing, craving spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. It's a process. It gets better with time. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As newborn babes, we will appear very often, maybe innocent, maybe naive, maybe even foolish at times. And because we still own some of that inherited ignorance, that worthless way of life, and it's certainly all around us, and it's at war with this new way of living. But we've tasted and seen that God is good. And, you know, when we say God is good, we have songs that say it. We're not just, this verse lets us realize that we're not just talking about some theological definition of goodness. No, it says that God is good like ice cream. He's awesome, and you can't get enough of him. Our hope is not in some distant theological future. Our hope is in a new way of thinking about the challenges we face every day today. We have a new nature. We have purified ourselves, and we've become obedient to the truth, and we're tasting the milk, and we're working our way up to greater things. Now, in this age, and that new nature is going to change the way we act, the way we react, the way we solve problems, and the way we set priorities. And it is the overflow of that sincere love that comes from the heart that Peter says is in you by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's there. Start using it. It's important that you remember this, because as I said, Peter's going to take us into some deeper challenges of applying this hope throughout different situations in life and even into deeper and greater trials. So my word to you today is simply, Set your hope. It's like an anchor for your soul. Let's pray. Almighty God, the key to all this is the amazing work that you have done in each and every one of our hearts as we first hear and by your Holy Spirit respond to the truth, the marvelous truth of your grace. And so, God, we ask that you do grow us up. You continue the work that you have begun in us until the day that Jesus is revealed and we get to see what amazing things that we get to hope about in heaven. God, you are a great God, and we look forward to all that you're going to do with each of us as we mature in Christ. We prepare our hearts now for communion.